Well, what a welcome. It is our joy to be back. I think this was scheduled for something like two years ago, and then a little thing called COVID got in the way, and we're glad that that's now in the rearview mirror, and we are together again. It's fun to be here, always one of the high points of our lives and of the year. Uh, we love Minnesota. We love this camp. And again, I echo, happy 4th of July. Uh, we are proud Americans. Um, we, we wrote the test. You just had to be born. We had to write the test, so we kind of doubly glad for America, and we are very grateful that God's, <clears throat> God's called us to this nation. We love what God's called us to, and we are just thriving in all the goodness that God has shown to us. So very special to be with you. Uh, we've got just a really short kind of intro video that will echo a little bit of what Pastor Mark has shared. So let's look at that, and then I'll give you a few introductions, and we'll get into God's Word together. Just uh, turn your attention to the screen, and this will give you a little bit of an intro to what we're doing. I think we're ready to roll, Jessica. I hope we are. Trinity is unashamedly Bible college, but we understand that there are multiple ways in which you can make a difference for God in your world. Trinity does not only raise up pastors and missionaries, we're also committed to school teaching and business and coaching, but all within the context of being good news to the communities that they get to serve. We have an amazing campus and we're connected to the world through multiple ways. Our campus is always expanding due to the needs that we see and the opportunities that God gives us. Sometimes people wonder about our relatively remote location, but it actually works to our advantage. We find students drawn to us from literally across the United States because of the value of our campus community. They see in this community a place where they can learn, a place where they can be cared for and mentored. We train and educate our students in a very practical way in order to give them a great launching pad into the rest of their lives. Through internships, regular ministry opportunities, traveling around the nation and around the world, Trinity is able to get you from here to there. What you bring to Trinity is what no one else can bring, and we want that. You simply have to check us out. Just a little vignette, you're able to see some of the development that God has helped us achieve in the last number of years, and uh, hope that's an encouragement to you. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time, but there's a bunch of literature at the back. Pastor Mark mentioned the Pack Your Bags program that continues to thrive and grow, and we'll actually have the Pack Your Bags director, Mary Beth King, with us later in the week. Uh, over the last uh, few months, I have actually written a book on the last 10 years of what's gone on at Trinity. It is true that 10 years ago, we were not in a very happy condition. We were placed on probation academically. We were in very deep debt. There were serious financial issues. I'm glad to tell you that we've just come through a 10-year reaffirmation with flying colors. We are totally debt-free, and it's been a story of God's faithfulness and God's goodness, and I've actually written some of those things down. And so if you just want story after story of encouragement and God's goodness towards us, I called it Faithful Stories of Trust, Courage, and Resilience. There's just one little catch to this. This book isn't for sale. Uh, it is available for donation of $10 or more. And um, there we've, uh, we've made a commitment that every single dime that comes in is going to go into our endowment fund in order to train people for ministry into the future as close to debt-free as we possibly 
possibly can. So that's at the back. Many of you will remember Carol's first book. I've already had people say we bought it. There's another one that's out that's uh, been just as well received called Simple Trust. I'll let Carol talk to you a little bit about that tomorrow, but we're back at the table afterwards if you'd like to get hold of us, and uh, we would be glad to be able to let you have some of the things that we have to share. I want to speak to you a number of times this week out of the book of Luke. Carol will be speaking tomorrow morning and Thursday morning, and I'll be doing Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So every morning we're with you. We're looking forward to this time. And I want to speak again, I want to speak to you today out of Luke chapter 19, a story that many of you will know almost immediately. If you've got any kind of church background, you will know the story of the little man that we know from the Bible as Zacchaeus. Says in Luke 19, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. I'll read the chapter, you know it well, but let's get it into our thinking again. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. Interesting, the tax collecting and wealth go together. Uh, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter. Being a human malady from the very beginning, don't know why it is that people feel the need to mutter from time to time, but they do. And this is what they said. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and save what was lost. I've got a slide that's going to come up in just a moment of a dear friend of mine. His name is Chris Carey. Chris Carey and I started first grade together. Chris was the naughty boy, and I did my best not to have him influence me too much. But uh, he came from a big family, a fun family. I think there were seven kids. There was always fun and games and happiness in that household. And Chris became a very good friend of mine, and we went through all of elementary school together. Chris was always late. He was never on time. He didn't brush his hair. He got out of bed late. He had to catch a bus to school. He was always running. I remember one day he arrived at school. He had his backpack on, and he looked at me with excited big eyes. He said, Paul, it was my sister's birthday party yesterday yesterday and I managed to get a bottle of Coke and I brought it to school and I tell you what, I'll share it with you. We're first graders or second graders by now. This was like the super most exciting thing that had ever happened. There was only one catch that we were going off to a swimming lesson and he said, I'll share it with you if you carry it and you sneak it out of the classroom. Well, I was up for that. We used to have a little sort of shorts that we wore and an elasticized belt. So I stuck it inside that belt and pulled my shirt out just to 
enough to cover this bottle of Coke and innocently walked past the teacher and started making my way down the corridor. We were going to get to the swimming pool. We were going to get behind one of those walls. We were going to open that Coke. This was going to be one of the best school days I'd ever had in my life. And I remember as we were walking down that stupid bottle, like some of those bottles that started to fall last night, it slipped right out of my belt and it had been shaken so hard and so long, it literally exploded as it hit that pavement and a great big shard of glass shot right into my leg. It started to bleed. It just missed the femoral artery. I rushed off to the restroom. I sprayed water in. The teacher fainted, had to get stitches. It was like a super dramatic day at school. And that was the kind of stuff that happened a lot of the time with Chris Carey. He was just one of those kind of kids. And I was very grateful for his fun, but it was also a lot of trouble being a friend of Chris Carey's. We finished elementary school and Chris Carey went off to boarding school, which wasn't uncommon in South Africa at the time. He went away to a place called Grahamstown and I didn't see him for a whole year. His family had always been going to that school and after about a year, we managed to get together again and almost instantaneously, I knew that something had changed. It was just different. And we started to get into conversation and he was unashamed within a few moments. He was telling me, I've given my life to Christ. I've become a Christ follower. He's changed my life. My whole outlook is different. And I knew it was very discernible. There was a change in this man, this young boy's life. And, and so we continued to have a conversation. And it wasn't long before he did what most of us ought to do when we are Christ followers. He said, hey, by the way, we have church on Sunday night. Is there any way you'd come to church? And I knew I hadn't had, didn't have much on. And so I agreed to go to church. And so we were all excited for the end of the week and going to church on Sunday night. I turned up on time. It was not a large church, but there was a balcony a bit like this. And so we found our way right up in the back row, high up in the balcony. And Chris was super excited that I'd come to church. I'd never been in a church like that. Didn't grow up in a church like that. People raised their hands. There was singing. There was a whole lot of joy in the place. And then the preacher got going and he was pretty animated. And I'm watching this with big wide eyes. I still wasn't quite sure what I'd let myself in for or why I was there. But it was kind of fascinating watching all this activity going on. And then I remember getting towards the end of the service and the preacher did what many of us are familiar with. He said, now I want you to close your eyes and bow your head. Well, I wasn't sure that I was ready for that either. And so I kept one open, just scanning the audience. And then he said, if you want to give your life to Jesus, I want you to do just one thing, just one thing. And I'm listening carefully. I'd never heard this before in my life. He said, if you want to give your life to Jesus, I want you to just slip your hand up in the air. I'll see it. I'll say, I'll pray for you. Well, I wasn't ready for that. No way. I wasn't prepared for it at all. But before I knew it, I felt this hand reach out, grasp me by the wrist, and up in the air. There it was, high up in the air, and Chris Carey had reached out. He had grabbed my hand, and it was in the air. The preacher was onto it like, I see that hand. I'm looking at my own hand thinking, I didn't put it up there. That wasn't me at all. And Chris is there as proud as could be, and I thought, okay, I got that over. It's all done with. And then a little while later, the preacher said, now one more thing, just one more thing. I'm thinking, I don't know. Is this ever going to end? He says, if you put up your hand, I'm thinking, I didn't put up my hand. Chris put up my hand. He said, under the courage of your convictions. I want you now to get up and walk down to the front of the church. I'm thinking, no way am I going to do that. I've just already had my hand put up. I'm not going down to the front of the church, but I felt this hand grab my collar like this. 
And the next thing, I'm out of my chair, and Chris, with a beaming smile all over his face, he walked down to the front, dragging me with him, and everybody watched, and he's sort of giving a little bob of his head, saying, I got him here, and I'm going to get him to the front. I'm going to see this whole thing through. So I'm there, still not really willing. And then a little while later, the pastor prayed for us, and then he said, one more thing. I'm thinking, oh no, this has gone on forever. He said, I want you to go off into this little room at the side. That's weird. I mean, that was a scare. <laughs> we, we really shouldn't do weird too much in church. We tend to do a bit of it, but we shouldn't do too much weird, you know. And I'm thinking, I could go in there and die, and nobody would even know about it, you know. But anyway, Chris got me into the room, and there was a nice gentleman there, and he read a bit of the scripture, and he said, let's pray, and then he slapped me on my back. He said, God bless you, you're a Christian now. I said, thank you, that's very nice. And um, I remember getting up, not quite sure what had happened, what had taken place, but over a period of a few weeks, transformation started to occur, and here I am, 46 years later or more, loving Jesus and serving him. And... Uh, I'm forever grateful to Chris Carey. Let me tell you a few more things. He went on to medical school, following in his father's footsteps. Third year of medical school, they were going on vacation. His dad fell asleep behind the wheel, rolled the car, and Chris came out of that a paraplegic. He was confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life. He managed to finish medical school, went into practice. Soon after that, married, and they lost a child in a drowning in the family pool. Uh, a number of years later, his son had got a wonderful job in the cleanup after the Iraq war and was on his way home with enough cash to buy a house and a roadside bomb took his son out and killed him just before he came back. And then last November, my friend Chris Carey went to be with Jesus after a lifetime of sadness and sickness, but I believe he's completely whole in Jesus' presence right now. So I honor my friend Chris and I thank God for him because of what take, took place in my life all those many years ago. Why don't I tell you all that? Why don't I fill you in with all those details? I'll tell you why. Because when you consider the story that I read to you and how Zacchaeus climbed up into a sycamore fig tree, this thought came to my mind that my tree, my sycamore tree was Chris Carey. Chris Carey gave me the opportunity to climb up and look over the crowd. Chris Carey gave me the opportunity to see Jesus in the distance at first. It was Chris Carey that gave me the opportunity to be able to encounter Jesus in a way that I might never have ever had another opportunity at all. He became my sycamore tree. And there's the sense, friends, in which I want to speak to you today about the fact that every city needs a sycamore tree. Every church ought to be a sycamore tree. All of us ought to be sycamore trees to other people. There ought to be something about our lives, our communities, and what we do together as the people of God that enables people to climb into the branches and look across the crowd and see Jesus. We need to be sycamore trees just like that sycamore tree literally was to Zacchaeus. We can be sycamore trees to people all around our community and the great state of Minnesota and beyond. Sycamore trees. Chris was my sycamore tree all those years ago. Let me explain a little bit more. I think the first thing that we ought to be if we fulfill this kind of metaphor of being a sycamore tree is we ought to be a safe place for the outcast. I don't know how you feel about this, friends, but they need to be safe places for people that are broken. 
There need to be places where people can run and hide. I read the text and I discover in Zacchaeus somebody who was undoubtedly an outcast. We know from the context that he was a wealthy tax collector. And if you know anything about tax collectors in that day, you will know that tax collectors were outcasts from their own people. They were sellouts. There was a colonial government that was in place. They were very shrewd in that they were able to hire local people who knew local customs, who were able to work the local situation. And these tax collectors not only collected tax, but they always creamed off a little bit more. And over a period of time, one of the most hated members of any society in ancient Middle East was the tax collector. Hated, despised, rejected, thrown out, not a part of society. And so Zacchaeus was constantly doing his math and saying, is all of this money worth it? And it obviously was to him, but in any way you cut it, Zacchaeus was an outcast. He was not a part of the community and the society of which he was, uh, he was a member. He was an outcast from the very people that he should have been a part of. And yet he found in the branches of that tree a safe place from which he could see Jesus. And I think that that ought to be something that's deeply impassioned within our own beings. We ought to be able to build safe places, caring places, where people can run and those branches of the tree enfold them. I don't know about you, friends, but I want to declare today that with all of my being, our churches ought to be safe places. Our churches ought to be places where people who would otherwise not feel comfortable are comfortable, that they'd be able to run to our churches. No manipulation, no control, nobody just trying to get one up on anybody else. Our churches are places of love and acceptance and forgiveness and kindness. They're like those great enfolding branches of the tree that find the place for the sa of safety for the outcast in our society. It's not always true. It's not always true that people find a home and a welcome in churches, but may it be true. May we go from this camp with some deeper commitment in our lives to create churches that are safe places for outcasts. The first church that I was ever the senior pastor of was actually our home church. We returned to it after a number of years and uh, the church had gone through a very traumatic time and it split and a small group was left. And I remember us rebuilding the church, and one of the wonderful things that God did was send us dozens and dozens and dozens of wonderful young teenagers who were getting remarkably born again and changed and transformed. And I remember we started on the front row, and we eventually filled the front row, and I'd go, go down, high-five them all, say, hey, when do you think we could get the next row filled? And when do you think we could get the next row? And we'd get the next row, and then the next row, and then the fourth row. I'm telling you what, we displaced some people who had sat in the same seat for 30 years, and it was wonderful. We loved doing it, and these young people, but young people were not able to help us all that much financially. And so I realized as a young pastor that we needed to start to diversify and build out the church. And I was really hoping for some really nice young couples to join our church, young families with their kids. And I remember I'd get up on a Sunday morning and I'd scan the crowd and hope that this morning somebody new was coming to church. and Maybe there'd just be a good rock solid family in the church. And one morning, a family just like that turned up. I mean, they 
were just perfect. The kids were dressed up beautifully and well-behaved, and a mom and a dad. And these were the kind of people I wanted to join our church. So I remember giving them a little smile and a welcome and hoping that they'd be really impressed with the service. And I'm just starting to feel really good about this couple being in our church when I look up and I realize it's raining outside. And because our church was just on the edge of the inner city, when it rained, we got certain undesirables coming in for shelter. And to my despair, one of these drunks rolls in the back door, says amen in all the wrong places, slurs his way through and sits down. I'm thinking, where are the deacons? Get him out of here. This isn't good for us today. And I'm smiling at this family and I'm scowling at this gentleman and I'm hoping that he's not gonna disrupt the service at all. And I'm just really, really feeling a bit compromised by all of this. So then I start a dialogue with the Almighty just to give you a little insight to how preachers' brains, they are complicated, you always knew that and realized that, but preachers' brains can get quite complicated because we're preaching our heart out here and we're having a dialogue with the Almighty all at the same time. So I'm starting to say to God, God, I'm gonna preach my heart out, but no altar call today. There's no altar call. Because I've lived long enough to know that when there's an altar call and there's one of those guys in the back of the church, guess who's always the first to respond in a very embarrassing way. And I don't want him to embarrass me in front of this nice family. So I throw down this challenge, which was not a good idea, because almost instantly I feel God say, you will have an altar call today. I say, no way, God, no altar call today, and I'm preaching my heart out, smiling at the family, scowling at the gentleman, and, um, <clears throat> and the dialogue goes on, and eventually, about 10 minutes into it, I realize I'm done. I'm, God's winning this. God, God, God's gonna, he is telling me to have an altar call. So I reached an amicable relation uh, agreement with the Almighty. I said, okay, God, if we're gonna have an altar call today, it's gonna be the roughest, hardest, stinking altar call I've ever given in my life. So God, that's the deal. God said nothing, so I went ahead. And um, so... <clears throat> We get to the point, you know, I didn't get the band up. I, there was nothing, there was no lights dimmed. I said, um, okay, I've shared with you the truth. You know that Jesus loves you. And if you are a sinner in your dirty, awful, evil sin, and you want Jesus to change your life, we're not gonna pray, we're not gonna look down, we're not gonna close our eyes. In, face, in front of us all, you're gonna make your way to the front and we're gonna recognize the sin in your life and we're gonna call it out. I mean, I'm just really laying it on, thinking no way will this guy come forward. You know, this'll be fine. Maybe this couple will be impressed by my forthrightness. So if that's you... <clears throat> Guess what happens? The guy gets right out of his, I'm thinking, oh no, that's exactly what I didn't want. And he sort of made his way backwards and forwards down the aisle, you know, as drunk as could be. And he comes to the front and I am really mad by this. I'm, I was only about 24, so give me a break. You know, it was, uh, <clears throat> I've grown a little bit in grace since then. And uh, so I remember, I, I said, what do you want? And uh, he sort of slurs his way. He says, I want to give my life to Jesus. I said, by the look of it, you need to. And, um, and so, <laughs> I, I, I lacked entirely in any kind of grace or dignity. And, um, and then I started uh, doing what I said we'd do. I'd say, now you say this after me. God, he says, God, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. And uh, <clears throat> he says, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. 
and um, I'm, I'm, I'm dying. I'm just this, I'm not enjoying this. I'm, I'm not thinking much about eternity and about the man's soul. I'm just thinking about the nice couple who I love to have join our church, you know. And so we get further into it and he confesses a whole bunch of sins that I told him he had committed. And, um, <laughs> and I'm looking at him like this very intently um, and really not enjoying the moment. And then I witnessed a miracle. I'll never forget the moment when I saw that man whose name was Peter, not only saved, but sobered in an instant. By the time we got to that, in Jesus' name, amen, his eyes were clear, he was standing straight, he was in his sound mind, and he said it with perfect articulation, in Jesus' name, amen. He lived in a apartment complex a little way from the church. He actually in those days got out a map and he worked out that there was something like 26 liquor outlets between where he lived and where the church was. So he got a pen and he made a map. On the map, he marked out a very circuitous route so that he could get to church without walking past even one of those and be tempted on the way. And he became a faithful part of our church, joined our deacons, served with distinction, became a wonderful, godly individual who served God for the rest of his days. And I'm so glad for the day that Peter found it wasn't a safe place, but it was a place, a place to come and find Jesus. He was the outcast. And eventually our church became a great safe place for him. And the nice family never did join our church. Never knew what happened to them, but Peter did. Oh, may God send the Peters of our towns and our cities to our churches. May we be the kind of people with such depth of character that we become a sycamore tree in our community. And people say, if Jesus is around, I'm going to run to that place so that I can find Jesus. That's what sycamore trees do, and that's what we ought to do as Christ followers. Another thought, just building and developing the idea. You see, I believe that the sycamore tree is a place, it's also a place from where people can see Jesus. Not only a safe place that people can run to, but it's a place that builds a platform, builds an, a, a, an area or a space from which they can get to see Jesus. We know from the text that Zacchaeus was a small man. Doesn't tell us a whole lot more about that, but without reading anything into the context, we know that he was short enough that he couldn't look across the crowd. He was enough of an outcast that he couldn't find his way through the crowd because he would certainly have been elbowed. So he climbs up into the tree, and the tree is a platform from which he can look across the crowd and see Jesus. And he saw Jesus that day because he had climbed into the sycamore tree. And friends, that's what we do. That's what our lives are all about. Everything about our values and our choices and our decisions and the way in which we govern our lives and the way in which we fellowship in our churches, the way in which we make friends amongst the people of God, the way in which we conduct everything that relates to our existence. It ought to be in such a way that people can climb into our branches and they see Jesus. Jesus. Statistically, we don't always do a good job at that. 
as you look down the way in which we conduct our lives, a lot of us don't have lives that are so radically transformed that everything about us reflects Jesus. But we ought to. We ought to aspire to that. That ought to be the progress of our lives. That somehow, some way, our lives and our family and our choices and our finances and our values will reflect the goodness of an eternal God back into the world and people would say, ah, oh, that's how you live. That must be Jesus. May God help us be those sort of people. May God help us to so conduct our lives that whenever people come into contact with us, somehow they see Jesus. That's why I believe we should often go on missions trips. That's why we get out of our comfort zone. That's why we come to camp. That's why we inspire ourselves the way that we do so that one way or another, Everything about our lives eventually becomes a reflection of the goodness of the eternal God back into the world, and people see Jesus. When God called his ancient people Israel, he didn't make them a special people or a select people. He made them a chosen people. And the reason that he chose them was that their value system and the way in which they conducted their lives would be so exemplary, so different from the tribes around about them in the ancient Middle East that people would able to look into that land and see the way in which their lives were lived and say that reflects something that we don't have. That reflects a God that we've never come to know. That reflects a God that loves people. That reflects a God that doesn't require us to sacrifice our children. That reflects a God that doesn't require diabolical behavior. We see in Israel a reflection of a good God, and God's intention was that all nations around the world would stop and go, ah, so that's how you do it. Ah, so that's how you conduct a marriage. Ah, so that's how you parent children. Ah, so that's how you conduct your finances. Ah, so that's how you navigate through crisis. You reflect the peace and the grace and the goodness of an eternal God into the world. We travel often with students, love doing it. It's been a big part of our lives for many years. And I remember some years ago, I took a group of students back to near where we used to live in the eastern part of South Africa. The whole region had been terribly decimated by the HIV AIDS pandemic. We knew that there were thousands of orphans around. We had had multiple encounters with them. We had been first to respond to the Mozambican refugee crisis when that took place. And so we were familiar with the area, and I was always glad to take students back and help and uh, do what we could just to serve some of those very needy communities. We got in the van one day, and we drove around to a home-based AIDS care community that we had helped to form some years before. It was a little community of different families that had come together, and they were caring for those that had been decimated by this horrible disease. And I remember getting there, and we got out of the vehicle, and we started to speak together. And you know what it's like in Africa. You ask how the goats are, and you ask how uh, things have been in the last few months, and you kick the dirt a little bit, and you get through all the formalities. And then eventually we got down to the business of the day. We said, is there anything we can do? Can we help the community? Are there any little tasks that we can, can perform? And it was um, kind of going around in circles. We were getting nowhere. No, we don't know what you can do. No, there's not a lot that we can think of. I uh, hadn't thought through it very much. And then somebody got a bright idea. They said, you know what? There's this little group, and she pointed at a very basic house down uh, just a half a block away. said, there's this um, couple that have uh, got this young 12, 13-year-old in their house. 
Uh, she's a recent orphan. She had nowhere to go. And so they agreed to take her in. They could hardly afford to do so. And they had just built a little cinder block addition on, and they had got just some rough poles and put them down and, and a, a roof on top of that. And there were some windows, but there was no glass in the windows. And this little girl who had lost her whole family had moved in, and at least it was some shelter. And they said, you know, it's very gray, and it's all just not very nice inside that room. And uh, they looked at us and said, do you think you could clean it up? Do you think you could maybe paint a wall? And so we said, that's a great idea. We were really excited about it. We'd clubbed some of our money together. We said, just give us a moment. We got back in the van. We went to a local hardware store. We said, have you got some good paint on sale? The guy said, no, no paint on sale. They said, oh, what have you got? And it all seemed really expensive. And then he remembered something. He said, you know what? I've got a bucket of paint over in the back there. I mixed it up specially for somebody. It's a color that he especially requested. And um, I don't think I'll ever sell it, so I'll give it to you at my cost. And it was a really good deal. We got this big sort of five-gallon drum of, uh, of paint, and we took it out. We had no idea what we were buying. We just knew that it was a big bucket of paint. And so we got it back to the house, and we started to crank open the lid. And as we took the lid off, it was loud. I remember it sort of shouting at us. It was the most intense canary yellow you've ever seen in your whole life. It was this bright yellow paint. I thought nobody would ever buy that. No way. I don't know why I had that all mixed up. And so there we had it. It was better than the gray walls, and it had come to us at a really good price. So I said, okay, guys, let's got it. We've got a lot of paint. We could probably get all of these walls done. And you know what students are like. They found a brush and started to paint things and write their names and paint each other. And, and we going on about two hours into this. We hadn't made much progress at all. And I looked at my watch. I said, this little girl's coming home from school soon. Come on, let's get our act together. So they really did. They painted. We painted the walls. We even painted the ceiling, all that dirty gray roof and the poles on the ceiling. Uh, everything was painted, just about, including the students. And I remember we finally nearly finished the paint, closed it all up. We cleaned up. We managed to find some bedding for her, and so we made the bed a little bit better, and uh, we looked at this, and we were pretty proud of our handiwork, and we went back through that little basic house, and we stood outside the front door, and we all waited in expectation for this little 13-year-old to come home from school. She had no idea what had been going on during the hours that she had been in the classroom. I remember she came up the road, and she paused a while when she saw this whole crowd of people outside the house, wondered what was going on, and when she came, we were all smiling and well welcoming and, and eventually we said we got a surprise for you and we didn't think it was any big deal we just bought a cheap pot of paint and we'd put some paint on the walls and but it was kind of like the big reveal you know and so I remember we walked through this very basic little home we pushed the door open and this little 13 year old who had lost both of her parents in the last few months stood in the door and just stared and you could see her eyes tracing all the way around. She looked up and down and left and right. And then I noticed there was a tear that started to roll down one of her cheeks. And I'll never forget the moment where she looked at us again and she said, for me, this is all for me. And we're smiling. We say, yeah, it's all for you. It's, it, it, it's your room. This is your room. And then the tears flowed freely. And as I looked around the room, not one of our students had a dry eye. We were all sharing that moment, that little girl and the reveal and the change that it made and the color that it brought into her life. And one of our students stepped forward and gave her a hug and said, it's from Jesus. And it was. 
And I realized that day, friends, that in the most basic, elementary work of kindness, we had built a tree for a little girl to see Jesus. She saw Jesus in that bright color. She saw Jesus in the service. She saw, saw Jesus in the lives of our students. And you know what? It reflected back, and we saw Jesus in her. And I'm ever, forever grateful for the day we painted that room that gaudy, bright yellow. Isn't that how it ought to be? Isn't that how our lives ought to be lived? Isn't that the way in which all that we do and say and are should enable people to climb to that safe place and look across the crowd and get beyond the crush, get beyond the complications of life and living and people and see Jesus. I pray that over your churches. I pray that very especially over your homes. I pray it in the workplace. And ask that somehow, some way, such a work of grace will occur during the course of this camp that by the time we gather again, we will have built places from which people could see Jesus and encounter him. And of course, continuing the story, there's one last thought that's an obvious one. The sycamore tree is a safe place for the outcast. It's a place from which people see Jesus and then Finishing the story, it's a place from which Jesus invites people to dinner. I don't know how Jesus, of course, the Son of God, he knew it all, but I don't know how he had computed that moment at all, but he went straight up to Zacchaeus. He said, Zacchaeus, you come down today. Some of you remember the story, and we used to sing it in Sunday school, I'm coming to your house today. And he said, I am coming to your house. And Zacchaeus said, you are most welcome. And so that sycamore tree became a threshold for Zacchaeus to invite Jesus and for Jesus to invite Zacchaeus and they went home for dinner. It's a place from which Jesus can be invited to dinner, a place from which he can invade our homes, a place from which he can touch our kids and our young people and our teenagers, a place from which the outcast can be made welcome. Jesus wants to come home. Jesus wants to be in every part of our lives. He wants to be around our meals and share. It's elementary, friends. It's probably the most simple expression of what we believe as Christ followers, but it is simply this. We do not leave Jesus at church. We do not leave him in the campsite. He comes home with us, and he gathers around the table, and he is welcomed as a special guest at the meal. Jesus is ever-present within our homes, and he loves to heal and make whole and restore and just like Zacchaeus was able to say, Jesus, because salvation has come to my home, I restore what's been stolen, I give to the poor, and the commendation of Jesus was rich and strong. Many years ago, my dad was the director of a large construction company, and um, he had put out tenders for contracts in their staff canteen for daily meals and whatever else was served there. And it was a whole process. I remember him talking about it. And eventually, he awarded the contract to a Greek confectioner. And uh, so this Greek confectioner was very grateful for the business. And every Thursday, I remember it well, every Thursday, there would always be on my dad's desk by the end of the day, a great, big, delicious, luscious, decadent, 
gateau or cake, uh, something really fancy that this man had baked. It was often a, a, a beautiful black forest cake, just oozing cream and chocolate and cherries and all kinds of delicious things. And my dad came home one day and he carried this great big cake. It weighed a lot into the house. I was the youngest of three sons. It didn't take long. That cake was gone. It hardly hit the table. We consumed the whole thing. We were so glad that our dad had given that, uh, that contract to that businessman. And uh, the next Thursday, again, this beautiful cake came home. We were pretty excited and we ate it up very quickly. And the following Thursday, we wondered whether the guy could bake anything else, but we were quite happy for it as well. By the fourth Fourth Thursday, we weren't really enthusiastic and the cake wasn't being eaten at all. And after about six weeks, even the dog wouldn't eat the thing. <laughs> and I remember it was sitting on our kitchen table, this beautiful cake, and all of us were looking at it saying, we've eaten far too much of that kind of cake. And um, I, I had become a new Christ follower after my friend Chris Carey had invited me. And my parents were not entirely sure that they were happy about my newfound faith or my newfound church. But I remember sort of becoming quite bold as a 14-year-old. I said, hey, mom and dad, how would you feel if we gave that cake to our pastor? And you could sort of see the reasoning going on in their head. You know, the kids won't eat it. The dog won't eat it. So yeah, give it to the Pentecostal pastor. You know, that kind of works. <laughs> and um, in fact, my dad even offered to drive to where these people lived. Uh, I think he was happy that the cake wasn't going to be wasted, so I cradled it carefully on my lap, and we drove across town. They lived in a high-rise complex, and uh, they were just a young couple. They were serving us. They had come out from England, and they were pastoring our home church, and I had no idea what was going on in their lives. I had no idea that they'd had a really bad Sunday. They'd had confrontations with people who had been incredibly unkind to them. None of that was, I wasn't aware of any of it. In fact, what was filling my mind at that time is, how do you have a conversation with a pastor? I'd never had a conversation with him one-on-one. -on -one, and I'm getting really nervous. I'm going up in the elevator saying, I wonder what I should say. How would we say it? How do you open the conversation? And I'm walking down the corridor, nursing this cake. And I'm getting more and more nervous and a little bit more unsure all the time and eventually I catch my breath I knock on the door he answers the door I say here and I launch the cake right into his hands he kind of caught it I said have a good day and I took off before we had any conversation whatsoever <laughs> we kept some contact and a little while later they left and they went back to England and Carol and I went to Bible college in England and I remember this couple were incredibly kind. They opened their home and they became a second home to us and almost second parents to us through those Bible college years. And he and I used to go for long, long walks along disused railway lines. And uh, we'd have great times. He mentored me. I remember those times really fondly. And we were walking one day and I remember him turned to me. He cleared his throat and he said, Paul. I said, yep. And uh, <clears throat> he cleared his throat again. He said, Paul. I said, yep. He, um, he, he sort of stalled a bit. He says, um, uh, a Paul? I said, what is it? And then he looks at me, and I could see that he was slightly emotional. There was a little quiver in his lip. And uh, he said, do you remember the cake? <laughs> I'm trying to think. Cake. I, what cake? And it took a little while. It did not been a big issue in my life. I'd just sort of given it to him and run. And, uh, and I said, what cake? And he explained. I said, oh, yeah, that cake. I didn't tell him about the dog or anything like that. <laughs> <clears throat> and then he became visibly emotional, and a tear ran down his cheek. And uh, he said, I just want you to know 
that we are still in ministry today because of that cake. I said, never. <laughs> he said, yeah, people had been really unkind to us the Sunday before. We'd suffered an unnecessary and false accusation. Just in the young 20s, we need to be kind, friends. Just got to be, we, we should go back from camp with this determination. We're going to be kind to our leaders and to the people of God. It's just, it's just who we ought to be. It doesn't mean that we ignore things that need to be put right, but we do it with grace and with love. And he said we'd come home. Both of them had other qualifications before they'd gone into ministry. And they looked at each other. They said, why don't we just go back to England? We'll both get good jobs. They'd just given birth to a little girl they said, you know, we'll give her a great home. We'll give her a better future than what uh, we think we're going to get in ministry. And they said, as they were pondering this and processing it and about to come to a decision to leave ministry forever, there's a knock at the door. And outside the door is one of their teenagers. And he launches this cake into his hands. He said, that cake was so heavy. He said, when I brought it back in, I put it down on our little rickety coffee table and the thing rocked backwards and forwards several times. And he said, with every time that it went backwards and forwards, that beautiful cake with all of its lusciousness, it spoke to us of the kindness of God and the goodness of the God who loved us and cared for us. And he said, we welled up with tears and we saw this cake and the provision that it spoke about. He said, you know what we did? He said, we held hands across that rickety table and across that beautiful cake and we committed ourselves to serve God for the rest of our days and be in ministry because it was worth it. He said, thanks for the cake. We're still in ministry today because of that. How amazing. But you know what, friends? That's what happens every time people like you in this congregation today extend kindness, invite people into your lives, open your homes, go out for a coffee, Make the call that you know you should be making. Follow up on that promise that you made a long time ago. Fulfill your word. Because you know what happens? You become a sycamore tree. And the sycamore tree is a place where Jesus comes up and he looks right into the eyes of those people that you're inviting and you're caring for and you're sharing with. And he says, I'm coming to your house today. And Jesus goes home and this declaration is made across households, across our state. Today, salvation has come to this home. And I don't know if you're like me, but that's my earnest desire that somehow the work of God's grace through our time together, our sharing in the word, our kids gathering downstairs, our meals around tables, our sharing of fellowship one with another, may it result in people feeling safe. Knowing that Jesus is there and they can see him. And above all, having Jesus come home for dinner. I'm going to ask that the musicians join me for just a few moments. We're going to wrap it up. I'm not going to invite you to the front. But I tell you what I am going to do. I'm going to, as honestly as I know how, confront you as friends and ask you simple questions. Here's the first question. And I guess I address our pastors at the top of the list 
and then all levels of church leadership and through to the rest of us as well. Can I ask you this question? Are our churches safe places? I mean, we do all the health and safety stuff. We check the fire extinguisher and we train our Sunday school teachers and youth workers. We all know the issues of a litigious society. I hope that's all settled. I hope we understand that. I hope we, we do that and do that faithfully. But it's deeper than that. Safe places where people know that confidences are kept. Where people know that there's kindness in the house. Where people know that they can trust you and that your word is good. You getting what I'm saying? I tell you what, friends, we will transact something incredible in the heavens today if across this beautiful crowd of people we commit to our churches being safe places. In a while, I'm going to ask you to stand in agreement with me, but let me finish the questions. The second question I ask is, can you honestly at the start of this week be so transparent before God that you would be able to say, God, I want my life, my marriage, my home, my choices, my values, my purchases, my habits. I want it all to reflect Jesus so that I become a place from which people can see Jesus and our church is a place. Again, I want to zero in on our churches. Our churches are the most powerful platform for change and transformation in our society. Nothing, nothing, nothing compares to the power of the local churches in our communities. Do people see Jesus in the way in which we conduct ourselves in local churches? Are we quick to forgive? Let me get just a little bit more direct. Are you an active participant? When fine people like these behind me say, let's worship together, is that a time for you to resist and resent or is it a spontaneous time of hands raised? Because one will reflect Jesus and one won't. Do people see Jesus? And then the last question, is your life in a place where Jesus comes home for dinner, where you join that mission and there's a declaration today, salvation has come to this house. I wanna pray over us. These things are pretty important to me. And so I'm gonna invite you across the congregation to stand together in an act of devotion and dedication. Please process those questions. And in the depth of your heart, won't you say with me, Jesus, make our communities, our homes, and especially our churches safe places. Help us, Lord, to so 
build that people would be able to climb into the branches which is our lives in our church and look across the crowd and see Jesus. Jesus, we pray that we would create spaces from which you can invite people to dinner and declare that salvation has come. So now, friends, more than a closing prayer, I'm going to declare the favor of God, declare His promises, make known His blessings. I'm going to commission you to become sycamore trees in every context that you find yourselves. And so, my friends, as I symbolically extend my hand, I pray the blessing of God Father, Son, and Spirit upon you.